This is Jonah Berger, author of The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to help them grow by helping them earn the attention and trust of their prospective customers. For more, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. This episode is sponsored by David Merriman Scott's phenomenal New Marketing Mastery course that he developed with Tony Robbins. New Marketing Mastery will teach you step-by-step how to get your marketing in alignment with the way your customers want to buy. David spent three years putting together over 50 videos, dozens of infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook to get your marketing to generate a lot more sales. And even nicer, Marketing Book Podcast listeners will get $500 off by entering promo code marketing book. To sign up, go to newmarketingmastery.com, but make sure to enter promo code marketing book for that $500 off. You can find a short video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Professor Jonah Berger back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind, published by Simon & Schuster. Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and international best-selling author of two other books, Contagious and Invisible Influence. Dr. Berger is a world-renowned expert on change, word-of-mouth influence, consumer behavior, and how products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. He's published over 50 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches Wharton's highest-rated online course, and popular outlets like the New York Times and Harvard Business Review often cover his work. He's keynoted hundreds of events and often consults for organizations like Google, Apple, Nike, and the Gates Foundation. And Interesting fact, one of his very first jobs was as the Easter Bunny at the mall. Dr. Berger, congratulations on The Catalyst, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. So it is great to have you back. And just for those uh, playing the home game, you were episode 76 
about four years ago. This is going to be episode 269. So if you come back every 193 episodes, (laughs) I've already got you penciled in for episode 462, which we'll publish on November 17th, 2023. That sounds wonderful. So in case there's another book in the future, you know, we we, we got a place for you right here at the Marketing Book Podcast. If you want to come back sooner, you you certainly may. (laughs) Now, I should mention that, again, people who follow Marketing Book Podcast trivia know that authors with degrees from Stanford far outnumber authors from any other school. And you have a Bachelor of Arts and a PhD from Stanford. So the truth is, I'm delighted to have you back. I'm honored to be interviewing you. But by podcast law, I am required to interview you. <laughs> but it's it's just amazing. They seem to be a very prolific and uh, competitive group of people who write these sales and marketing books. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So I have interviewed also authors who are graduates of the Wharton School. And I've even interviewed one of your colleagues, Peter Fader, who wrote uh, customer the Customer Centricity Playbook with Sarah Toms. Oh, yeah. Pete's great. So I'm trying to work my way down the whole hallway uh, of, <laughs> of all the Wharton professors. But I do want to say that you know over the years, I've heard from so many marketers and salespeople who listen to this show or, or I have spoken to, and they bemoan how old school their management is. You know, like they say, uh, they're, they're, they're old school. They don't understand, you know, modern marketing or the, the way the modern consumer is buying. And for all those people, this is your book. <laughs> this book is going to walk you through, probably give you a little empathy for why people think the way they do, but how you can help to reveal to them what change should happen uh, for their business. And also, I just want to mention that there were several stories in your book which, which illustrate the points you're making. And there were some stories in your book where all sense of time and space just stopped for me. They were so engrossing. So if that was, <laughs> if that was your objective, you have succeeded. Oh, that's very nice of you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad they were effective stories. So let me just quote from uh, one thing at the beginning and ask you a question. You said you started studying catalysts because you were stuck. A Fortune 500 company had asked for help launching a revolutionary new product, but traditional approaches weren't working. We'd tried advertising, push messaging, and all the usual tactics without much luck. So I dug into the literature. <laughs> Professor Berger, what did you find? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm an academic at heart um, and uh, spent a number of years at the Wharton School, did a PhD at Stanford before that, L- love academic research. Um, when Contagious came out a few years ago, it changed my life. Um, I got a chance to work with a variety of companies and organizations and really see how marketing is happening at all levels uh, of business, from huge Fortune 500 companies to small startups, B2B, B2C, for-profits, non-profits, everything in between. Uh, you know, high-tech firms, CPG, uh, you know, fleet management companies, dry cleaners, ev- everything you can think of. Uh, and, and I noticed that there was a common problem, uh, which is that everyone had something they wanted to change. Uh, as you nicely said, you know, some employees had new ideas for marketing, but they couldn't get their boss to come around. Uh, B2B marketers or sales folks wanted to change the clients' minds. Uh, Some marketers wanted to change consumer behaviors. Um, uh, Leaders of organizations wanted to change organizational culture, the way organizations approach something. Startups wanted to change entire industries. Everyone had something they wanted to change, but change was often really hard. 
companies and people were pushing, uh, you know, send more PowerPoint decks, make more phone calls, send more presentations, uh, and it just wasn't working. And so as you, as you noted, as I talked about in the book, you know, I started to wonder, could there be a better way? Could there be a different approach to, to changing minds and action and organizations? And so I did a few things. You know, one, I looked for the clients that I was working with, what was working for them, uh, and interviewed everyone from top-selling salespeople uh, and leaders to great marketers and, you know, uh, really great uh, folks that have, have led startups to, to success. Um, and I also looked at the academic literature. You know, what did that literature have to say about what approaches were working and, and, and different? And, and I noticed a common problem, which is most people were doing some version uh, of what I call pushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, adding more information, adding more reasons, uh, compelling people to go in a particular direction. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If we're sitting in a room and there's a chair in that room and we want the chair to move, we go, okay, if I push the chair in a particular direction, it'll go in that direction, right? You push the chair one way, it moves. The problem with people and the problem with organizations is that they're not chairs, Right? When we push people, when we push organizations, they don't just go, they often push back. And so the question then is, is there a different way besides pushing? Right? If people are going to push back when we try to change and they're going to react, they're going to push back and not do what we want, could there be a better approach? Mm-hmm. So just moving ahead, you say this book has a simple goal to reframe how we approach a universal problem. You'll learn why people and organizations change and how you can catalyze that process. And then you go on to say whether you're trying to change one person, transform an organization, or shift the way an entire industry does business, this book will teach you how to become a catalyst. So for those listeners who did not study chemistry or don't remember anything from that, explain what a catalyst is. So I was talking about this problem about pushing and why it wasn't working to some of my friends in, in chemistry, and they, they pointed out that there's a special set of substances in chemistry that makes change easier. So for those of you who aren't chemists, which is me included, um, it's obvious that chemical change takes a long time, right? So we think about plant matter uh, eventually changing into oil. We think about uh, carbon changing into diamonds, whatever it might be. Often it takes thousands, if not millions of years. Uh, and so uh, chemists often add temperature and pressure to make change happen faster. Think about a popcorn kernel, for example example, right? You put it in the microwave, it's a bag of kernels. Uh, Microwave adds uh, temperature and often pressure as well, um, and it turns into popcorn, right? More temperature, more pressure, more heat uh, leads a reaction to occur. Uh, But there's a special set of substances that chemists often use uh, that make change happen much faster uh, and easier. Uh, They do everything from clean our contact lenses to clean the engines of our car. Uh, They're used in yogurt. We use them to digest food. Uh, They've won a number of different Nobel Prizes. Uh, But what's most interesting about the special substances is not just the fact they happen change happen faster and easier, but the way they do it. Catalysts don't increase the temperature and they don't increase the pressure. They actually provide an alternate route that requires less temperature or less pressure. They don't push harder they find an alternate route and they remove the barriers to change. They make the same amount of change happen with less work. And I think this analogy is actually equally true and equally valuable in the social world. Rather than pushing, think about, well, what could I do to get someone to change? Ask a slightly different question. Why hasn't that person changed already? What are the barriers or the obstacles that are preventing them from changing and how can I mitigate them? Rather than pushing them in one direction, Think about what are the restraining forces that are preventing them from doing what I want? How can I identify those restraining forces or those barriers? And by mitigating them, can I make change easier and more effective? Mm, Yes. And you're right that when it comes to trying to create change, people rarely think about removing roadblocks. Oh, definitely. 
you know, I think there's a there's a great analogy uh, if you think about getting in a car, right? So imagine you've parked your car in an incline after you, I don't know, you watched a baseball game or whatever it might be. So you get in the car, you put your seatbelt on, you stick your key in the ignition, you turn the car on, you press your foot on the gas, and the car should go. If the car doesn't go, we think we just need more gas. We think we just need more horsepower. And the same thing is true when we're trying to change minds, right? If we're trying to change the boss's mind and they they haven't changed it, think, if I just send them one more PowerPoint deck, if I just make one more presentation, if I just explain to them the reasons why my idea is the right idea, they'll come around. Whether that person is a boss, whether that person is a client, whether that person is a consumer, whether that person is an entire organization. And, and, and so going back to the idea of the car, Right again. If we're back in that car, we think we need more horsepower. We need more, uh, more step on the gas. But we often don't look to a simpler explanation, which is maybe we just need to depress the parking brake. And so that's what this book is all about. Right? It's about how do we identify these parking brakes or these barriers, these obstacles that are preventing change, and how to mitigate them. And so the book talks about the five key parking brakes or barriers that often come up again and again. It talks about the science behind those barriers, what they are, and then some strategies of how to reduce them. It's terrific because I am able to be reminded of why certain things work well and why certain things actually don't work very well. And I see them used a lot in marketing and sales, but it also helped to explain <laughs> my own behavior <laughs> when I'm trying to buy something or, or make some kind of change. So let's talk about, I mean, there's, there's several of these, but or I think you mentioned five, but we won't have time for all of that. But a few of them that I thought were really really interesting and super relevant for marketers and salespeople and business owners and so forth. And it's called reactance. And I want to talk about that. And in reading your book, I didn't realize that I shouldn't be eating Tide Pods. And so now I know, see, the things I learn from these books that are on the show, but in in the reactance part, you talk about how people have these innate anti-persuasion systems. What do Tide Pods have to do with this concept of reactance? Yeah, so reactance is the first of the five barriers. Uh, it's, it's reactance, endowment, uh, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. Uh, together, the five spell reduce if you make them into an acronym, which is exactly what good catalysts do. They don't push harder. Uh, they reduce barriers. Uh, but to get to your question about uh, Tide Pods, um, you know, a few years ago, Tide had a, a problem. Uh, and so many of your listeners are probably familiar with Tide Pods. They're these wonderful things that you drop in the, the laundry. Uh, you don't have to guess about exactly how much to put in. Yeah, it's like a little packet of detergent that just dissolves. Uh, and so Tide had spent decades uh, making this, uh, sort of engineering this, uh, and they were introducing it in the, in the U.S. market. It's a you know billion-dollar market. They thought they could get a good chunk of it uh, and had, a, had hundreds of millions of dollars in, in terms of advertising. Okay, so they re- released this product, um, and the marketing was going fine, except there was one problem, which is that people were eating them. Uh, and so if you're sitting there going, wait, I thought we were talking about Tide Pods. Why would anyone eat them? You'd be exactly right. Uh, they are full of chemicals. Uh, but there was a satirical article in The Onion. Uh, there was a funny video posted on the website College Humor. Uh, and soon, young people were challenging each other to eat them. This was called the Tide Pod Challenge, which you may remember uh, from a few years ago. Not uh, sanctioned by Tide. Not sanctioned by Tide <laughs> in, any, in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, kids on the internet were challenging each other to eat, eat Tide Pods. Okay, so Tide is sitting there going, what do we do, right? This is not the use of the product. What should we do? And so they did what any company would do. They told people not to eat Tide Pods. They released a message saying, hey, Tide Pods are obviously dangerous, don't eat them. Uh, and in case that wasn't enough, they hired Rob uh, Gronk, uh, Gronkowski of New England Patriots fame to shoot a short video for them uh, that posted on social media saying, you know, should you ever eat Tide Pods? No, 
what about in this situation? No, 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 no. Sort of a funny video saying don't eat Tide Pods. And that's when all hell uh, broke loose. So uh, right after that video, uh, more than four times uh, the number of people were searching for Tide Pods than had previously. Uh, it wasn't just concerned parents trying to figure out why Tide reminded them of the obvious. Uh, visits to poison control shot up as well, uh, going up many multiple times in the next few years, a uh, few weeks of what had happened in the, in the years previously. Um, and very simply, uh, a warning had become a recommendation. Telling people not to do something had actually made them, in this case, more likely uh, to do it. But that's actually part of a much broader principle, which is this idea of reactance, right? Uh, sometimes when we tell people not to do something, or even when we tell them to do something, it makes them do the exact opposite. And, and the reason why is that people like to have a sense of freedom or control. We like to feel that we're driving the choices and the things that are happening in our lives. Why did I order this entree? Because I like it. Why did I do this project at work? Because I thought it was a good idea. But when we try to persuade someone to take a certain course of action, to buy a certain product or service, it impinges on their ability to see that choice as being driven by themselves. It impinges on their ability to see themselves as free and in control of their destiny. In some sense, people almost have like an anti-persuasion radar. So think about sort of an anti-missile defense system, right? You know, incoming projectiles coming in, uh, the missile defense system goes up, boop, 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 recognizes the projectiles, shoots them down. That's exactly what happens with people. When there's a persuasion attempt that comes in, whether it's a message over email or a pitch or a PowerPoint deck, our defenses go up our, uh, and we shoot down that message. We avoid it or ignore it. We change the channel on the television. We delete the email. Or even worse, we sit there and counter-argue. We think about all the reasons why what someone's suggesting is a bad uh, idea. Even and if so, it's good for us. Even if it's good for us, right? So imagine uh, imagine you tell the boss, hey, boss, you know, I think we should do this new initiative. It's going to make this much money, and here's why. The boss might have even liked that initiative in the first place. If they had come up with it themselves, they would have liked it. But because you suggested it, right, now they feel like someone else is in control of their choices, and so they have this tendency to push back. You see this all the time uh, with your relationship partner, for example. You know, when someone else suggests something, the fact that they suggest it makes you less interested in doing it. And so that's the idea of reactance. And then in, in the book, I talk about three or four different ways we can sort of mitigate or reduce that barrier. Yes, and it reminded me of when the my kids were little and you had to get them ready in the morning. You might put out two outfits for them, and I didn't really care which one they wore, <laughs> but they picked. You know, they, they got to pick. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about that concept of, of letting people pick their own path and then giving them options. Yeah, and so this is part of a principle I would call providing a menu. And I think a good way to explain this principle, and it will eventually get to exactly what you talked about with your kids, but, you know, imagine you're in a presentation. You're presenting to your boss or you're presenting to a client, um, and you are saying a certain course of action is a good idea. And you have all the reasons why it's a good idea. Well, you're making that presentation, but the listener's sitting there with their anti-persuasion radar on, on, on red alert. Right? They're sitting there going, well, of course you'd say this is a good idea. It's your idea in the first place. Of course you're saying it's going to save money. Uh, that's what you would say. You would never say it's not going to save us money. Right? You're self-interested. When you're making that presentation, I'm not going to listen to you. And so even while they're sitting there seeming like they're shaking their head, they're thinking about all the reasons why you're wrong. And so good persuaders, good uh, change agents, great catalysts do something subtly but importantly different. Rather than presenting one option, they present multiple at least two, if not maybe even three. Rather than presenting one thing, they present a couple courses of action. And what that does is that changes the role of the audience member. Because then rather than sitting there going, okay, what are all the reasons why I don't like this idea? 
when faced with two ideas, our natural tendency is to compare them and figure out which of them is better for us. And so rather than thinking about why they don't like your idea, they're thinking about which is a better fit for them, which is going to make them much more likely to pick one of them at the end, right? And so whether that person is a boss, a client, or even your kids, giving them choice, giving them that sense of freedom and autonomy allows them to participate. Now, notice we're not giving them infinite choices. We're not giving them 17 different options. We're not giving them uh, 40 different options. We're giving them a small, limited set. It's what I call guided choices. We're picking the choice set, but allowing them to choose within that choice set. Giving them that freedom and autonomy will reduce reactance and makes them much more less uh, interested in, in sticking with the old. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about David Meerman Scott's new marketing mastery course and a very generous discount he's offering to Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Two books have had the biggest impact on my marketing career, and one of them is David Merriman Scott's The New Rules of Marketing and PR. Naturally, I'm a big fan of David Merriman Scott, which is why he was the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and why he's returned several times. His new marketing mastery course, Three Years in the Making, in collaboration with Tony Robbins, teaches you step-by-step the most important aspects of modern marketing so that your marketing can drive dramatically better sales results. Many of the mistakes I see companies make in their marketing can be avoided by following what's recommended in this comprehensive course. The new Marketing Mastery course has over 50 videos, over 25 infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook that gives you step-by-step instructions on topics like buyer personas, content, social media, and building a business growth plan. Now, you can continue spending money having a good time going to marketing conferences or hiring consultants, but for a lot less, you can get this course, implement what he teaches, and start seeing measurable results. And your whole team can use it, which is why it's a great way to train your marketing team, particularly new hires. The knowledge you can get from the latest edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR is why I continue to recommend it as the one book to help people get a better handle on what they need to understand about modern marketing and the modern buyer. Now, with this course, you can learn how to turn that knowledge into action. The secret to getting ahead is getting started. For you to get started, go to newmarketingmastery.com and enter the promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off the price. Go to newmarketingmastery.com and make sure to enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off. I also have a video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now back to the show. So can you talk about the importance and utility of using questions as it relates to inciting change rather than providing facts and figures like you were describing there. Yeah. So I was talking to this guy. uh, He uh, runs a test prep company in Washington, D.C. And so they do GMAT and LSAT and all these different things. Uh, and he was actually a student of mine in executive education, and he told me this this amazing story. So uh, obviously, he doesn't just run the test prep company. Sometimes he chips in when, when uh, teachers can't make it to help out with sort of the introductory lectures. And he found that students weren't studying enough. Uh, and so when he talked to them, he'd say, hey, you need to study this much. And they'd say, no, no, thanks. If it's the first day and someone tells you you need to study a bunch, you're probably not going to believe them. And if what they want you to do is so different from what you want to do, you might even drop out of the course. And so he's trying to figure out a way to get people to do something they didn't want to do but would actually be good for them. And he realized that pushing them wasn't working, making statements wasn't wasn't working. So eventually he came along with a, a subtly different approach, and that is to start by asking questions. 
not saying, hey, you need to study 30 hours a week, whatever it is, but asking people a question, why are you here? And students would often say, well, I'm here because I want to get into a good school. Okay, what counts as a good school for you? And students listed some things. He said, okay, well, what percent of people get into those schools? And they started having a conversation. What kind of scores do we need to get to get into those schools? And after they talk for a while, he finally poses them the question, okay, given all this, how many hours do you need to study? And as part of this conversation, students have realized that they know something, but they don't know everything. And so they start asking him questions back. Well, how much do you think we need to study? And when he throws out that number, 30 hours a week, whatever it is, it's much more palatable because they, in some sense, have committed to the conclusion. They've already said why they're there and all the different things that they want. They've put a stake in the ground of what they want to achieve. And so it's a lot harder for them to then leave that stake when he tells them it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get there than they might have thought. I was talking to a startup founder. I was talking about this with motivating employees. He was saying, you know, I need people to work harder hours, stay the weekend. No one wants to do that. So instead, at the next meeting, he said, hey, he asked a question. What kind of company do we want to be? Didn't tell them anything. What kind of company do we want to be? Do we want to be a good company or a great company? What kind of things do we need to do to be a great company? People start out throwing out things and participating. And then at the end, he says, well, to get those things, we've got to work harder. We've got to start working the weekend. And so he makes his path the best way for them to get to the destination, right? People love sharing their opinion. They love chipping in their thoughts about something, but also it's a lot harder for them to disagree with something if they've participated. They've said something is important. They've shared their point of view, which makes it a lot harder for them to say they don't want to do something consistent with that point of view later on. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what you call endowment or people's attachment to the status quo. One of my favorite parts of the book was this, and I think it's really applicable to every salesperson. But you you talk about how people's attachment to the status quo can be changed by helping people realize that no action isn't as costless as it seems. Like they're standing on an anthill. Yeah. I mean, as a salesperson, you have uh, one obvious challenge, but one more subtle one. And the, the obvious challenge is to you know get people to buy your product or service. But the challenge also is you've got to let them to let go of something they're doing already. Because in most cases, you're not pitching someone that's not doing anything at the moment. If you're pitching a new software package, for example, they're probably using a certain software already or they're doing something rather than having that software. You're not just asking them to do something. You're asking them to replace something else. And what we often don't think about is how strong people are attached to the things they're doing already. Part of the reason is uncertainty. New things are uncertain. Old things are more certain. But it's even more subtle than that. There's something called the endowment effect, which essentially shows that people value the things, the products, the services, the ideas that they're doing already. So if I asked you, I showed you a mug, for example, and I say, hey, how much would you pay for this mug? It holds coffee. It holds tea. It's this night white mug. How much would you pay for it? You might say two, three dollars, whatever it is. But if instead I gave you that mug, I gave you a chance to hold on to it and think about it. And then I said, okay, this mug is yours. How much would you sell it to someone else for? $7. Yeah, much higher. (laughs) Much higher than your willingness to to pay for it. Same mug. Valuation should be the same, but they're different. Why? Because we're attached to stuff that we're doing already. The longer someone lives in a home, for example, the higher their valuation of that home is, even above market price. Right, because they've become attached to it. And so part of that challenge we have as salespeople and anyone trying to get someone to change is not only to do the new, but to let go of the old. So can you explain the concept of loss aversion? Sure. So I think the best way to describe loss aversion, uh, imagine I flipped a coin and I say, okay, heads, you win $100, uh, tails, you lose $100. 
And I said, okay, would you take that bet? So would you take the, the bet of heads, heads, you win 100, tails, you lose 100? Eh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. P- probably not, right? And so part of the reason is expected value, right? Uh, 50% chance of heads is $100. 50% chance of tails, you lose 100 is negative 100. Add them together, they're zero. So even standard economics would say, don't take that bet. But imagine I sweeten the bet a little bit more. I say, okay, heads, you win $102. Tails, you'd lose 100. Now, expected value would be positive. I, trust me on the math, it'd be a dollar. It'd be worth taking that bet. Most people still wouldn't take that bet. Even if heads won you $110 or $120, still, you probably still wouldn't take the bet of losing $100. And the reason why is that losses loom larger than gains. That's the idea of loss aversion. Losing $100 feels much worse than gaining $100 feels good. And most of us are not asking people to gamble exactly, but implicitly we are. We're saying, hey, you have a product or service you've been using already, and we're asking you to switch to something new. And sure, there's some upsides of that new product, right? So if you're buying a new phone, for example, it has more memory, has a bigger screen, has a bunch of things that are really good. Same in a B2B context, but there are also some downsides. You have to learn a new system. You have to give up an old way of doing something. You have to pay some money. You have to trust a new company with your business. There's a whole bunch of costs, and those costs are losses, and those losses loom larger than gains. And so one of those big challenges, okay, if losses are are worth twice as much as gains, the gains have to be really good, or we have to understand the psychology of how to change people's minds. Otherwise, they're not going to switch. So can you explain what you mean when you say that to get people to change, the advantages have to be at least twice as good as the disadvantages. Yeah, that's this idea of loss aversion, right? We think the advantages have to be just a little bit better, but just like in the coin flip, losing $100 is weighted much more heavily than winning 100 even though it's the same amount of money. Same thing, right? You may be sitting there going, hey, my product or service is better than the competition, but it's not just enough to be better than the competition. If people are choosing you and didn't have anything they were doing already, there's no loss. But because they have to give up something old, Those things that they're giving up are actually much more costly than you might think. And so that's when we have to do things like ease endowment, right? We have to figure out ways to make people realize, look, the status quo isn't as costless uh, as as it might seem. There was a financial advisor I was speaking with that was trying to get their client to invest more money. So the client was keeping a lot of money in savings. They were scared of investing money in the market. They said, what if I invest money and I lose? Right? Now, obviously, on average, investing in the market's a good idea. Sometimes you lose, but on average, you gain. Yet the customer didn't want to invest money. And so she tried different things. She tried different PowerPoint decks and information. And eventually she just started keeping a running tally of all the money he was losing by not investing uh, in the stock market. And he said, well, what do you mean losing money? I'm not losing any money. It's, it's in savings. It's safe. I'm not losing any. She's saying, well, technically you're not losing any, but you are losing some relative to this outside option. And first it was just a couple bucks, and then it was a few hundred, and then it was a few thousand. And eventually, once it reached a few thousand, the guy said, wow, I can't keep my money in savings anymore because I'm losing so much money by not switching. And so what she subtly and, and cleverly did is make him realize that there are costs of sticking with the status quo. The status quo isn't free. Yes, what you're doing before might seem safer, but they're also often costs. And by surfacing those costs and making them more concrete, you make people more willing to let go of what they might be doing previously. Mm. So is that tied into the concept where you say, as it relates to distance, another one of the five, that big change requires asking for less, not pushing for more? Like uh, there's another example in the book about, a, I think, a dietitian or a physician that was trying to encourage a patient not to drink three liters of Mountain Dew every day. 
Yeah, so we talked a little about reactance, which is the R. We talked about endowment, which is the E. And, and now we're sort of talking about distance, which is the D and, and reduce. And, and I think the interesting thing about distance um, is we often ask a lot. So if you're that doctor, for example, um, you know, you're often faced with patients that come in uh, that are you know, morbidly obese or have just mm -hmm. had heart surgery and they need to exercise more. Um, and obviously, someone who's way overweight should stop drinking soda, should stop eating junk food, should start exercising once a day, seven days a week. But for somebody who's not exercising at all, that's a pretty big ask. That's very far from where they are now. And so people tend, when something's too far from what they're doing already, to ignore it, to, to disregard it. I think a, a good analogy here is a football field, right? Uh, often we can put people on a football field based on their views or, or preferences. So think about politics, for example. You can imagine a very liberal end of the field is one end, a very conservative end is, is the other end of the field. And each of those hash marks, each of the yard lines are different sorts of views. Very conservative views are on one end, sort of more mild conservative views, eventually leading to sort of more moderate or middle ground views, leading to more liberal views and extremely liberal views. And so if you ask someone who's very conservative to immediately switch to being very liberal, unlikely they're going to do that. It's too far away. It's essentially in what's called the, the region of rejection. An ask that's too big falls too far from where we are now that it's just not realistic. We're not even willing to consider it. Sure, maybe I'll consider something that's five or 10 yards away from my position on the field, but 50 yards away, that, that's too much, right? And so going back to that doctor idea, what we need to do then is we need to ask for less rather than ask for more. And so I was talking to one doctor, as you mentioned, she was uh, had a patient who was morbidly obese. He was a trucker. He was drinking three liters of, of Mountain Dew a day. That's like eating over 30 Snickers bars a, a month. It's a huge amount of, of sugar and was obviously not making particularly healthy. She wasn't and and through say, your book, I realized that I should stop doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm kidding. No. Uh, and so she, you know, she was going to say what she would usually say, which is, hey, you, know, you got to stop drinking the soda, cut to zero. But she realized if she said that, he'd say, no way. So instead, what she said is, hey, you don't have to cut out all soda, but just drink two liters instead of three and fill up that third bottle with water so you have it in the cab of your truck if, if you need it. So the guy grumbled, said, oh, I don't want to, but finally he's like, fine. So he does that. And the next time he comes back, he's lost a little weight. And he says, okay, great. You've lost some weight. Now go from two to one. He grumbles again, leaves. Next appointment comes back. He's down to one. And then only once he gets to one does she suggest going to, to zero? And so notice asking for less is not just about starting right with less, it's continuing to ask. It's asking for less and then asking for more. In some sense, it's almost like chunking the change, right? Taking a big change, whether it's three liters of Mountain Dew or whether it's a project you're asking people to adopt or a service that's very different from what they're doing already and breaking it up into smaller, more manageable increments. The truck driver lost a huge amount of weight from this and you see the same idea more, more broadly. Product designers often call it as, as stepping stones, as using stepping stones. Um, if you have a very new product or service, very different from what people are doing, they're often scared of it. How do I know it'll work? It's so different. I don't really want to, want to do it. And so good designers, what they do is they say, great, we eventually want people to get across this river, but it's a river. It's you know flowing fast. I don't know. And people are scared of it. How can I use stepping stones to break up that big river into smaller jumps? We did this a few years ago, and I was working with Facebook and helping them introduce a hardware project. They wanted to do something very new in a few years, but we said, look, people are not going to adopt that right away. Let's start with something that's easier for them to grasp and then move them in the right direction. You think about Uber, for example. Uber didn't start by saying, get in a car with strangers. 
Most people would say, no, thanks. I don't want to get in a car with strangers. It's exactly what mom told me not to do. <laughs> they, they started by saying, hey, uh, you know, you're used to getting a black car. Uh, now, instead of calling a phone number, do it through your app, and it's cheaper and easier. Then once they did that black car version, then did they go down market to, to UberX, and eventually they'll go to driverless cars. And so mm -hmm. they took that big change. They used stepping stones to break it up into smaller chunks, make it more manageable, and encourage people to take action. Mm. So let's move on to one other uh, about uncertainty. You've written that money is not the only or even the largest barrier to change. Why is it uncertainty? So when we think about change, we talked about a little bit already the notion of endowment, that we're attached to old things. Uh, but we also tend to be scared of new things. People talk about neophobia, right? Uh, and, and essentially, new things are challenging for, for a number of reasons. One, they're almost always switching costs. And we alluded to this idea already, but I wanted to call it out more directly. Anytime you're asking people to do something new, there's a cost they have to incur. Uh, to buy a new phone, let's say you have to pay money. To install a new software system, you have to take time and effort. Uh, to figure out a new uh, protocol or a new payroll system, you have to spend time to figure out how to use it. And so whether money, time, or effort, energy, whatever it might be, there are costs to change. But even worse, think about when the costs occur and when the benefits of change occur. The costs of change are often now. They're often mm -hmm. upfront. Before I get to use that new software package or that new phone, I have to figure out how to use it. I have to install it. I have to pay the money. Costs are now. Benefits tend to be later. Sure, it might save me money, but I'm not going to know for a few months. And so costs are now, benefits are later, which is obviously terrible, right? Most of us want the benefits now and the costs later. We want to eat hamburgers and cookies and save the salads for next week, right? Sure, mm -hmm. I'll exercise next month. So uh, discounting says we want the good stuff now, the bad stuff later. So that's already a problem. But what's even worse is that the costs are certain and the benefits are uncertain. Right? I definitely have to pay you money, and I definitely have to pay it now to get access to this new thing, and it might be better, but I'm going to have to wait two months to find out. Right, And that uncertainty often makes people hit the pause button. There's a great study, you mentioned Stanford, my alma mater, so I'll, I'll mention a study that was done by a few other folks at Stanford a number of years ago. They asked some students to imagine, look, you just took an exam. It's the end of the semester. You feel tired and run down. You pass the exam. Congratulations. You have this opportunity to go on a Hawaiian vacation. Would you buy the vacation package, not buy the vacation package, or wait, pay a fee to wait? Most people said, look, I passed the exam. I'll go on vacation. Great. They asked a separate set of people, same scenario, same exam, same you feel tired and run down, same Hawaii vacation package, but unfortunately you failed the exam. Would you take the vacation package, not take the vacation package, or go on vacation? You can't take the exam until – retake the exam until next semester anyway. Okay, so fine. I'll lick my wounds and, and go on vacation. Indeed, that's what and, almost and everyone parties. does. Yeah, right? <laughs> we might as well. Then you'll come back rested for the next semester. And So whether you pass the exam, most people said they'd take the vacation. If they failed the exam, most people say they'd take the vacation. Uh, but there was a third condition. And for this third condition, they said, hey, you just took the exam. You feel tired and run down. You don't net know whether you passed or failed. Do you want to buy this vacation package, not buy the vacation package, or wait? Now, most of your listeners are smart folks, right? If you pass the exam, you go on vacation. And you fail the exam, you go on vacation. Well, then even if you don't know whether you passed or failed, you should go on vacation. But as most people have been in this situation know and can intuitively feel, you know that most people said they'd wait. Why? Because you want to figure out what's going to happen before you make a decision. Uncertainty makes us hit the pause button. 
rather than moving forward with a new project, rather than moving forward with funding something new, rather than moving forward and switching suppliers, if there's uncertainty, we hit the pause button and we wait, which is great for the status quo which is great for what we're doing already because we're already doing it, but is terrible for change. And so one thing we need to do is we need to alleviate uncertainty. And so I talk about three or four ways to do it in the book, but that uncertainty is risky. It feels uh, aversive. And so people are scared of doing that, that new thing. So Jonah, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? There's a different approach, a better approach to change. Uh, I don't mean to say we're doing it wrong, but we're doing it wrong. We tend to approach change a particular way. We tend to think pushing will work. It tends not to work. And so we need to start thinking about the barriers. We need to start thinking about what are those obstacles preventing change and, and how can we mitigate them? Mm. So is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? Oh, certainly. I mean, think about some of the things we talked about today, whether it's asking questions rather than making statements, whether it's providing a menu, uh, whether it's easing uncertainty, all of them are, are things they could apply. I think that notion of, of providing a menu or guided choices is an easy one to start with. Right? The next time you make a presentation, the next time you make an ask, rather than giving people one option, give them two. Give them a real choice between two different things and, and see what happens, right? Allow them to have that freedom and autonomy, not giving them 10 choices. You're not allowing them to do whatever they want, but give them a couple of choices, and I bet you'll see they're more willing to go along. And there's an appendix at the back of the book. There's several appendices, but there's one, uh, the force field analysis, where you walk them through well, what, what are some of the questions? What is it you're actually trying to accomplish? And you're able to kind of step out of your own situation and, and, and more effectively analyze it. So what books have inspired your work and career? Oh, yeah. So so many books. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I love a book many of us read a number of years ago called The Tipping Point uh, by mm -hmm. Malcolm Gladwell. I love uh, Made to Stick uh, by the Heath Brothers. Uh, there's a great book called Diffusion of Innovations by Everett Rogers that has greatly oh, right. inspired me. An old yeah, that classic. Was in the book. Yeah, yeah old, I did old, not old know classic. about that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great book. Uh, there's also a fun book called A Matter of Taste. It's all about using baby names to understand behavioral science. It's a, a fun read and also an interesting one. Oh, terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your sites and social media and links to all those books so people can find them quickly. And we'll include your LinkedIn profile and social and so forth so that I hope listeners will reach out and thank you. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. The author is Jonah Berger. Jonah, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And that closes the book on episode 269 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, David Merriman Scott's new marketing mastery course. Get $500 off with promo code marketingbook when you check out at newmarketingmastery.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Jamie Mustard to talk about his book, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose.